Judge Brett Kavanaugh has had an intense few days of hearings for his nomination to the U.S. Supreme Court. Professor John Graby, director of the Warren B. Rudman Center, joins me to discuss the contentious situation. This is the UNH Law Podcast. Learn more about the law school and apply by visiting law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire. Okay, I'm going to preface this that we're recording at 2.30 p.m. on Thursday, September 6, 2018. Things are, have been in progress all afternoon, so we're going to try and hit it from a kind of different perspective from the other news agencies is the goal. But, John, can you just set the stage for what's going on right now? Sure. So we are now in day three uh, of the hearings um, that uh, are being held about the nomination of Justice Brett Kavanaugh to replace Justice Anthony Kennedy and the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, this is of course, a much watched nomination because for the last uh, decade or so, Justice Kennedy has been widely regarded appropriately as the swing vote on the Supreme Court. Justice Kennedy was the most likely of the air quote conservative justices to uh, join with the more liberal justices. Um, And um, uh, therefore, uh, replacing Justice Kennedy with, uh, uh, you know, a justice uh, who seems to be uh, far to the right of Justice Kennedy could have real ramifications uh, for the Supreme Court. Uh, of course, front and center is the future of Roe versus Wade and abortion rights. Uh, but really, the stakes are, uh, um, uh, yeah, are, are very high in many, many other areas as well. Are you surprised at all by what's going on with these, the circus that's going on around these hearings? I mean, there's protesters, there's complaints from the Democrats that uh, Senator Grassley couldn't even get his opening statement done before people were trying to shout him down. Yeah, I mean, it's been really remarkable to see. Um, And so... You know, yes, I, I guess I'd say I'm surprised, but I'm sort of losing the ability to be surprised. Um, things <laughs> every day, something happens that uh, uh, seems to be unprecedented. I mean, I certainly anticipated uh, that these hearings would be highly contentious for a number of reasons. First of all, um, you know, we have, go back a few years um, and for Democrats, um, uh, the you know, the, the, the failure of uh, the Senate to hold hearings on the nomination of Merrick Garland when Justice Scalia passed away. Uh, that's still a very raw wound. Um, instead of Merrick Garland uh, ascending to the Supreme Court to replace Justice Scalia, uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch did. Uh, that was a swap out of a you know pretty conservative guy for a pretty conservative guy. Um, but still, you know the the it, 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 the wounds linger. Um, and um, you know another thing that happened in connection with the Gorsuch nomination is the Senate did away with the filibuster for Supreme Court nominations. So now um, the Democrats really have no say. They if if every Republican votes for um, Judge Kavanaugh, um, he will be confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court, and Democrats can't do anything about that. Um, and so that's a second reason why. I mean, I think uh, the elimination of the filibuster is obviously uh, you know, a source of uh, contention still with Democrats. Um, but it really does recall uh, the nomination of Judge Robert Bork to the Supreme Court back in 1987 as well, um, because that was a highly contentious hearing. That's really the first time in my lifetime, uh, at least, when a Supreme Court nomination uh, went national and was closely watched by the country. And then, as now, the reason was, or a, a, an important reason uh, for that happening, was Roe versus Wade. Back in 1987, um, uh, uh, Judge Bork was nominated by Ronald Reagan, who had promised to put on the Supreme Court justices uh, who would, among other things, 
uh, overturn Roe versus Wade. And uh, Judge Bork looked like he would be the fifth vote to do that in 1987. Um, and he was an unabashed conservative. Uh, and liberals defeated his nomination. Um, and then there was a second nomination that didn't go anywhere because of uh, allegations of drug use. That was uh, Judge uh, Douglas Ginsburg, who was alleged to have used marijuana and withdrew his name from nomination. Eventually, that slot went to Anthony Kennedy, whose retirement uh, has obviously precipitated this. But, you know, fast forward, Anthony Kennedy, to the surprise of many in 1992, uh, voted uh, basically to maintain the core of the ruling in Roe versus Wade. It was rolled back in 1982 in a a case called Casey versus uh, Planned Parenthood uh, of Pennsylvania. Uh, But the but the essence of the Roe holding was upheld by and and Justice Kennedy's vote uh, in combination with Justice O'Connor and and Justice Souter really acted to preserve the core of that holding Um, that was met with dismay, of course, uh, in circles where people would like to see Roe versus Wade overturned. And so now the numbers once again look like they may be lining up um, to do away with Roe. Um, uh, And so uh, for that reason alone, this was going to be a contentious hearing. But then on top of that, we have the recent history. Um, uh, of you know, with Merrick Garland, uh, we have the recent history with the elimination of the filibuster. We have um, you know what can only be described as a chaotic presidency uh, uh, taking place right now. As I sit here today, of course, there was an anonymous op-ed yesterday yeah, in the New York that's... Times from somebody inside the administration <laughs> saying, "Don't worry, he's not in control. The adults are." I mean, I'm you know exaggerating only a little. Um, and so um, you know, Democrats are also saying that this president is under investigation. He picked Judge Kavanaugh because in his earlier writings, one of the things Judge Kavanaugh talked about or wrote about was that he didn't believe um, that the executive should be subject uh, to investigation. He also has opined that the president ought to be able to fire a special counsel. So there's a lot. There's a lot that's going into all of that angst and energy that we're seeing in that Senate confirmation room. And that's kind of a question I have for you is the pro- being able to prosecute President Trump on anything. What, how do more liberal judges feel on something like that? Well, you know, it, it, there's not a lot of precedent. Yeah. The biggest precedent in this area is a case called U.S. versus Nixon that was decided in 1974. It was decided a few days before President Nixon actually resigned. Uh, at issue in that case was whether President Nixon had to hand over tape recordings of conversations held in the Oval Office uh, that uh, ultimately implicated him in a conspiracy to cover up uh, uh, the the Watergate break-in. Um, and of course, that led to a resignation of the president. Uh, that was a unanimous decision by the Supreme Court saying that, you know, the needs of the criminal justice system in those circumstances uh, were, 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 you know, uh, over, uh, surpassed uh, the, the need of the president for privacy. Um, this is a little different. Uh, right now, we're talking about whether or not the president can actually be subpoenaed to testify. They're not just seeking documents or tapes or information, they're actually trying to make him testify. So that's an issue that's never been decided by the Supreme yeah. Court. And that is something if if the special counsel, if special counsel Mueller were to um, uh, serve a subpoena on the president seeking his testimony and he were to resist it and that went into the court system, if it went up to the Supreme Court, um, and if the Supreme Court said he can't be forced to testify, that could be an important precedent. So that's another, re- and, and Judge Kavanaugh has in the past suggested you know, an openness to the idea that the president ought to be protected in those circumstances. So that's yet another reason why uh, everybody's closely watching this. 
something that keeps coming up from the questions uh, from Democrats on uh, in these hearings is they keep asking hypothetical cases like Roe v. Wade and all that. It's like, can can we press? Can uh, the president be subpoenaed and actually have to testify? And he keeps saying, it's like, I'm not gonna give you a hypothetical answer to some case that doesn't exist because it's different things exist within cases. And it seems like a lot of people, even that though a lot of these people are lawyers, are completely disregarding. Yeah, I mean, and he's joining a long line of candidates for the Supreme Court who have given that same answer and Gor- in response. Gorsuch was doing it when, during his hearings, too. Oh, yeah, and so did, you know, and, and, and you could go back through um, Democratic nominees as well uh, who did the same thing. Um, yeah, so, you know, the, the refusal to answer questions, and it's, and and some would say it's, it's a complete, you're, you're locked in from both directions because then the question is, well, what about this pending case? How do you, what do you think about that? And of course, he's also going to say, I can't comment on a pending yeah. case. So if you can't comment on pending cases and you can't comment on a hypothetical cases, you can't comment on a whole lot. And, you know, honestly, that's the reality of these hearings. There's, you know, for, for people who are, who are interested in the law, in the judiciary, this is theater. Um, you're not going to get uh, much substance uh, in these hearings. Um, Judge Kavanaugh uh, seems to be very skilled uh, at uh, doing what uh, other candidates have done before him, uh, which is to avoid answering questions in a way uh, that will, um, you know, cause problems. How do you feel this uh, this hearing process and the confirmation are doing to the integrity of the court with it being so erratic and controversial? Well, that's my worry. Um, and that's been, you know, that's not new this week. Um, that's been my worry over the over the past few years. Um, you know, the, the, the behavior of the political branches, and I want to present this in a balanced way. Um, so back when Obama was president, um, uh, the first decision to eliminate the filibuster with respect to federal judicial nominations was actually made by Democrats when they were in control uh, of the Senate, but didn't have 60 votes, which is what you need to overcome a filibuster. Um, they were uh, of the view that Republicans uh, were abusing the filibuster and blocking all of President Obama's judicial appointments. Um, and it is really true. Um, Obama, President Obama did not, uh, did struggle to, to fill uh, judicial vacancies. And so the Democrats did away with the filibuster, but only as to lower court federal judges. You know, the, 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 it, the filibuster was maintained for Supreme Court nominees, uh, but um, the writing was on the wall, right? And so, you know, when uh, Merrick Garland didn't get a hearing, and then of course the presidency went to Donald Trump and he now nominated Neil Gorsuch, um, and it became clear that Democrats weren't going to vote for Gorsuch in response. Well, the Republicans then did away with the filibuster for Supreme Court nominations. Saying, in turn, you did this You first. did this. We're you just going to keep so, it going. Yeah, so now we're going to do it. Um, I mean, what I worry about was where does this end? Uh, I mean, you know, there's so much we could talk about. You know, among the things that have come up during these hearings uh, is the question of whether or not uh, Judge Kavanaugh was truthful in his testimony back in 2004 and 2006 when he first became a judge on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, I don't know the state of the evidence. Um, another thing that's made this somewhat unprecedented is um, that a lot of documents are being withheld. Um, it, it certainly does appear that there's an unprecedented amount of secrecy uh, surrounding this candidate's history, at least compared to the past. Um but if, for example, I'm just I'm hypothesizing now, but let's say that, you know, the House and the Senate in the upcoming election, you know, swing back into Democratic hands and then let's say two years, you know, so, you know, will will there be calls then for those documents to be released? 
Possibly, right? And what if those documents do reveal or can be read to suggest that Judge Kavanaugh was, you know, not terribly forthcoming? For yeah, example. what happens in that situation? Well, then, you know, what you're going to hear then is calls for impeachment. Um, and you know, it, what, the, it, what is that? How does it work with a Supreme Court justice who's had that? What is the impeachment proceeding? Is it through Congress? Yeah, it's the same process that you would be used to impeach and remove a president, um, and that's how you get rid of a federal judge. So a federal judge gets his or her appointment for life, uh, so long as they behave properly. But they can be impeached and removed from office for high crimes and misdemeanors. That has happened on a few occasions to lower court federal judges who have engaged in criminal conduct, you know, accepted bribes, et cetera, et cetera. So. Um, to impeach a federal judge, be it a Supreme Court justice or any federal judge, what you would have need is a majority of the House to vote articles of impeachment. Then there would be a trial in the Senate and two thirds of the senators would have to convict. Um, so, you know, I mean, how long and how far is this tit for tat going to go? Um, the other thing that I would mention is that, you know, there was another time in our history where the court was um, uh, also sort of front and center and controversial. And it was during FDR's presidency. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected in 1932 on a platform of promising a new deal, which is a vigorous federal intervention uh, into the economy, which was, of course, suffering uh, in the throes of the Depression at the time. And the Supreme Court, um, which was quite conservative at the time, issued a whole bunch of rulings that um, uh, that thwarted, at least initially, President Roosevelt's agenda, holding unconstitutional all sorts of new federal innovations. Um, and yeah, in you know uh, 1936, uh, heading into 1937, uh, the idea was floated by President Roosevelt of packing the court, expanding membership on the Supreme Court from nine to fifteen. The the notion that there are nine justices on the Supreme Court is not written into the Constitution, so it could be changed. It has been different at different times in our history, and so Roosevelt threatened to pack the court. This is the court packing plan. He would have appointed six justices. He would have had a majority. You know, many people say, you know, and, and what happened is actually the court, whether it was connected or not, the court sort of backed off of its campaign of thwarting um, what President uh, Roosevelt was doing um, and started to uphold legislation that seemed quite similar to legislation it had struck down in the past. So, you know, that confrontation was averted, but a lot of people sort of look at that and say, well, what, you know, what does that do to the credibility and the prestige of the, of the Supreme Court as a law court rather than as an agent of our politics? Um, yeah, if they can be thwarted by bully tactics, basically. Right, right. Or if, you, if, you know, if politicians can just change the structure so that they get their preferred outcomes in Supreme Court rulings. Um, you know, the, the court has been perceived for much of its history. It's, it's, it's had its moments where, where its prestige was damaged, but it has had its moments of being, uh, uh, I'm sorry, it has for most of its history really been perceived as being, you know, somewhat disconnected from politics. And it has been accepted as a law court. Um, and so when the Supreme Court says something that is unconstitutional, you know, the coordinate branches of the federal government have honored that, even if they disagree with that. Um, you know, but the current theatrics um, and the, you know, the, 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 the sense on both sides that the court is perhaps really just an extension of the political parties really uh, calls that whole notion into question. And I think uh, should raise concerns for those who believe uh, in the value uh, of a federal judiciary that is at least somewhat removed from the political processes. 
Be sure to follow at Rudman Center on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening to the UNH Law Podcast. Learn more about us by visiting law.unh.edu or following UNH Law on social media. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire.